Saudi Arabia is essentially by default, the United States is primary interlocutor in the, in the region. And, and that means that we'll have to deal with it, whether we'd like it or not. I think that's the calculation that the Biden administration made, despite the president's very tough words about Saudi Arabia during the campaign. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franzo Silvia, and today I'm joined by my longtime co-host, Zach Wheeler. Saudi Arabia is one of the United States' oldest and most reliable allies in a region known for its instability. From the 1973 oil embargo to 9-11 to the civil war in Yemen, the relationship between our two countries has survived several critical challenges. But in the wake of the Jamal Khashoggi killing in 2018, how will the new Biden administration approach America's alliance with Saudi Arabia? To answer this question and more, we're joined today on the podcast by Dr. Stephen Cook. Stephen Cook is a senior fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies and director of the International Affairs Fellowship for Tenured International Relations Scholars at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's an expert on Arab and Turkish politics as well as U.S. Middle East policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's great to have you. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Excellent. So to get us started on our topic today, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about what the U.S.-Saudi Arabia relationship is built on? We know that the United States and Saudi Arabia have very different governance systems. Why is this alliance something that exists? Where does it come from? It comes from oil. <laughs> it's it's not really hard to discern. Um, it, Saudi Arabia for a long time has been uh, the swing producer of oil in the world. Um, this is something that I think took the United States by surprise during the October 1973 war when U.S. officials believed the United States had sufficient supplies and would be energy sufficient throughout the decade. But with the Saudi-led uh, Arab oil embargo on the United States that um, had a dramatic and precipitous effect on the price of a barrel of oil and thus prices at the pump. And that drove the United States into a, a deep uh, recession at the time. I think it reinforced uh, the strategic importance of Saudi Arabia as an oil producer. Also, um, the Saudis during the Cold War were reliably anti-Soviet. Um, so there was a, a real confluence of interests that, um, the United States provide security, uh, be essentially a security guarantor for Saudi Arabia, given its importance as a, uh, as, a, as an oil, uh, as a, a major and for a time, the most important, uh, supplier of oil in the world. And Stephen, given the fact that the relationship is primarily built on oil, I'm wondering, the United States over the past, I guess, maybe 15 years at this point, 10 years, has dramatically increased its output of, of domestic oil production. How does that affect the longstanding U.S.-Saudi Arabia relationship? Well, you're quite right. I, you know, the United States is once again the world's largest producer of oil. Um, and we never imported huge amounts of oil from Saudi Arabia. The Saudi oil was... Um, important for the reconstruction of Europe after World War II, um, has been critical to the, during the Cold War, was critical to the health of a, 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 the, a capitalist economic order um, that was part of a broader 
uh, ideological struggle with the Soviet Union and and its allies, uh, and since then has been critical to uh, a, a functioning global economy to through which Americans have have benefited. But with the shale revolution, with uh, the increase uh, in uh, energy exploration and exploitation in the United States, um, there has a belief has taken hold that Saudi Arabia is no longer as important to the United States as it once was. And there's, you know, there's good reason, you know, to, to make that case. Uh, if the United States is genuinely uh, oil, uh, independent in oil, then why would we go to such great lengths to be not only a security guarantor of Saudi Arabia, but also the security guarantor in the Persian Gulf? Um, and and those are good questions. And then there's the counter argument, which is that uh, no other country is in a position to provide those kinds of guarantees to the free flow of energy resources out of the region. And we still have a compelling interest in the health of the global economy. And the global economy is far away from being decarbonized. Thus, while we import less and less oil from Saudi Arabia, it remains important to us. I should point out also that, um, you know, the American, you know, shale industry and oil industry is not cut off from the world so that um, it is vulnerable to swings in commodity prices and changes in those commodity prices have a significant impact. So it's not like, the United States can, you know, go merrily along doing what it's been doing, regardless of what happens. So when there's a fall in the price of oil, shale producers and oil producers in the United States suffer. Um, so that's why, you know, Saudi Arabia with its partners can flood the global oil market and do damage to uh, the U.S. industry, which is precisely what happened uh, over the course of the last couple of years. And Stephen, while the well, Saudi Arabia has been a critical security partner for in the region for the United States, especially with regards to Iran and during the Cold War, it has always it has not always been an easy relationship to maintain. We've had severe challenges, such as the 1973 oil embargo and the 9/11, and and the most recently the Yemen war, the war in Yemen. So, how have these challenges? affected the nature of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? And how has the United States and Saudi Arabia moved past those challenges or at the very least come to a common understanding? Yeah, I think that I mean, you make a very good point. I think that, the you know, it has not always been an easy relationship. And although I would, I would you know, not necessarily say that Saudi Arabia is a critical security partner of the United States, that would suggest that the Saudis play some kind of, you know, important operational role, whereas, you know, it has more been that, you know, previously they have hosted American forces in the region that have helped provide for their security. Um, what I would say, you know, if you look back in October 1973 and, and the and the five month long oil embargo that, as I said, you know, pushed the country, the United States into recession, it was, you know, unsustainable for much longer than those five months because what the Saudis were doing were damaging uh, the country that provided its security. And there was, of course, um, concern uh, that if a rift between the United States and Saudi Arabia deepened, that it would invite Soviet adventuresome, uh, misadventure in the region. 
uh, and that the Saudis would pay. So, you know, essentially they ended the, the, the oil embargo. Uh, by the way, an oil embargo that did not extend to the U.S. military. Um, 9-11 was, again, a period of uh, tremendous uh, tension and mistrust in the relationship. Uh, that came after or during the second Palestinian Intifada, uh, which also caused tremendous unhappiness between the two countries, uh, if only because the Saudis wanted the United States to take a more active role uh, in, in mediating that conflict and, and the Bush administration chose not to, um, I, it, it wasn't until 2003 really that relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia got back on track after the Saudis themselves confronted, uh, extremist violence, uh, in, in their country that was a tremendous threat to them. And they got much more serious about, uh, counterterrorism and that this got, you know, created opportunities for, for greater cooperation between the two countries. I think overall, you know, Saudi Arabia's importance to the United States is, as I said, was based fundamentally on the, the bargain security for oil. It also is, you know, quite obviously a big and important uh, Arab country. The, the king of Saudi Arabia is the, is, is the custodian of the, of the, of the two holy mosques, which gives Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, influence uh, in both within the region and beyond. Um, and I think in more recent years, since the Arab uprisings uh, and the failure of a number of Arab states, uh, a country like Egypt, another Arab heavyweight, which has really turned inward and is in some ways in strategic hibernation, that you know the Trump administration when when it, it came into office, and then now President Biden took the oath of office when you surveyed the Middle East and you were looking for an influential Arab partner in the region, you really only had one choice. And that was, that's Saudi Arabia, warts and all. And I think that's why um, in President Biden's recalibration of the relationship, um, it has taken some, I think, important actions and sent messages to Saudi Arabia that there won't be a blank check, but it has been very measured in the way in which it has gone about that. And Stephen, we will get to to what the Biden administration might do in the future in a couple of questions. But the, the United States is not the only player here that has new leadership. In 2017, Mohammed bin Salman became the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia. So I want to know how his arrival has affected U.S.-Saudi relations and if he has fundamentally changed certain aspects of Saudi Arabia's policymaking like foreign policy experts thought he would when he came to power? Well, I think, you know, the formal ascension of, of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to that position, um, the outmaneuvering of uh, the then Crown Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, who was subsequently under house arrest, um, was controversial uh, in, in Washington, given Mohammed bin Nayef's long-term relationship with uh, the U.S. intelligence community is a, a very important figure in American and Saudi counter-terrorist and counter-extremist efforts. Um, but the United States doesn't decide who you know gets to be the crown prince or the king of Saudi Arabia. And I think that there was a lot of hope uh, at the beginning that Mohammed bin Salman was a genuine reformer. And there are things that he has done that I think have been important, but they remain within you know very kind of particular parameters 
and don't really extend to political reform. On the foreign policy front, I think that um, uh, the Saudis have undertaken a number of missteps. Most notable is the uh, intervention in Yemen's civil war that they believed would be relatively quick and easy. And that has been going on now for six years uh, and has uh, had an overall negative impact on uh, Saudi security uh, and put the Arabian Peninsula uh, and, and, and helped Iran uh, establish a foothold in the, in, in the Arabian Peninsula. Everything that the Saudis had said that they were going to Yemen to prevent, they've essentially accelerated or helped uh, make those essentially self-fulfilling prophecies. The uh, blockade of, of Qatar was uh, somewhat a, a, a quite a strange uh, foreign policy uh, venture on the part of the Saudis and their partners. It's you know no secret that the Saudis and the Qataris have difficult relations. Qataris want to have a independent foreign policy of the Saudis. Saudis chafe at that. But the blockade accomplished very little. And in the end, the Saudis were forced to uh, back down and got very little of their, in terms of their demands on, uh, on, on Qatar. Other strange things like the forced resignation of, uh, of the Lebanese prime minister. These were, these were things that raised serious questions in the minds of American policymakers about Mohammed bin Salman uh, and whether he really kind of had the temperament to be uh, the the Saudi leader, and that this was causing problems for uh, for the United States. But nevertheless, uh, regardless the of, of these significant missteps, and I should include the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in there, um, the Trump administration stood by the Saudis. Uh, I think for you know two primary reasons: one, um, the overall goal of the Trump administration in the Middle East was to apply maximum pressure on uh, on the Iranians. And part of that was assisting the Saudis in their fight in Yemen uh, and other things. And uh, the Trump administration made no secret of the fact that not only did it want to sell the weaponry that the Obama administration had sold to Saudi Arabia, but wanted to sell more weaponry to Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia is a enormous consumer of American uh, weapon systems. And um, President Trump was not beneath uh, plank salesman from the from the Oval Office. Um, there's been, obviously, there's been some changes in the Saudi approach since President Biden took office. Um, that has something to do with President Biden and the way in which he has um said that there would be accountability and a recalibration of the relationship. But also, I think the Saudis have been looking to get out of Yemen, for example, uh, and um, are uh, part of the dialogue that the Saudis are having with Iran is about how they can get out of Yemen. Um, And I think that's for their own reasons, not necessarily because the the new president of the United States uh, does not look kindly on the uh, Saudi intervention there. Stephen, you mentioned the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I'm wondering if you could refresh our listeners about the circumstances um, surrounding his murder, because it was almost three years ago, I, I believe, at this point. Um, what what happened 
with Jamal Khashoggi and how has that reverberated through the US Saudi Arabia relationship since? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So in October 2018, a Saudi journalist named Jamal Khashoggi who had for many years been part of the Saudi power structure um and was protected by the Saudi power structure had been spokesperson for the Saudis. Um he was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And uh, it was a brutal murder in which his body was carved up and his remains have never been found. He had moved to the United States because he had become critical of what uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was doing. Not necessarily the changes in the social reforms, but the way he was uh, consolidating his power and, and, and turning Saudi Arabia into a, a, a police state in the way that it hadn't been before. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia, obviously not a democracy, but the kind of, um, the, the, the kind of ways in which uh, Mohammed bin Salman and the people around him had sought to establish political control um, were things that uh, Jamal Khashoggi was willing to air uh, publicly. And uh, he went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul uh, to obtain paperwork for an upcoming marriage to a Turkish woman. Uh, And he never, was never seen again. Um, It was over the course of many weeks, um, the Turkish government did everything possible to undermine whatever story the Saudis were telling through the strategic release of information about what they knew about what was happening because they were listening in on what was happening, as was the United States, as was uh, the British government uh, from its listening posts on Cyprus. And um, I think it's, you know, all of the evidence uh, points to the fact that uh, not just that the people around the crown prince, but the crown prince himself were involved in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which caused outrage. Uh, in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Um, I think that the Saudis were, you know, stunned at the depth of the outrage and how long it lasted. And, you know, I think, you know, I had tried to explain to the Saudis in both private conversation and writings that I had done was that, you know, you you cannot murder a columnist. Khashoggi, when he was living in the United States, had a a column, I believe it was a monthly column with the Washington Post. You, you, you can't murder a columnist from in, in the hometown newspaper of the people who are either obsessed with news or make news or both um, and and think that you're going to get away with it. Um, and then there are other reasons why um, there was tremendous amount of outrage. And it did have an effect. It had uh, it, it, it convinced people in Congress, uh, mostly Democrats, but also uh, uh, also uh, some Republicans, that the Saudis uh, blank check from the Trump administration uh, was uh, not in the best interest of the United States. Uh, and obviously human rights advocates and freedom of the press advocates, all of which, you know, how could you not be for human rights and not be for freedom of the press? Um, the, you know, it's just kind of outrageous in the fact that Mohammed bin Salman was getting away with it, you know, really stuck fears within you know, uh, uh, among journalists that, you know, they uh, could be next, not necessarily from Saudis, but, you know, journalists working for other uh, journalists in exile, critical of their own home governments and so on and so forth. So 
it 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 it, it had a, a very a, a drastic change in the discourse about Mohammed bin Salman. Um, uh, he had been in the United States, I believe, in 2016. He'd spent about three weeks here. He was, you know, met with, you know, people like uh, not just American officials, the mayor, then mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, he spent time in Silicon Valley, spent time with Hollywood stars, Morgan Freeman, uh, I think Brad Pitt and others. And he really had this kind of, you know, splash in, in the United States. And then suddenly uh, he was seen as a, a cold-blooded killer, even though he wasn't the one operating uh, the bone saw. And so, Stephen, as you said, this caused such a dramatic reaction or drastic reaction. I guess dramatic has negative connotations. Drastic reaction in Washington. But then what did the Trump administration do with that outrage? And then I guess next is after, well, I'll get to Biden after, but so first Trump, what did the Trump administration do with the outrage around the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? Well, not a lot. Um, you have the, you, you had the spectacle of President Trump essentially saying publicly that the Saudis need to come up with a better cover story. Um, although in, in fairness, various American officials um, during the Trump era at the time were dispatched to Riyadh to tell to read the riot act to uh, to the Saudis, but in practical effect, it didn't really have uh, make much difference because, as I said, the kind of overarching geostrategic concern of the Trump administration was applying maximum pressure on the Iranian regime. So, uh, and 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 part of that was uh, supporting Saudi Arabia in its intervention in Yemen, as I alluded to before. Um, so there wasn't much in the way of a, of, a, of a response from the Trump administration to the Khashoggi murder. Right. And so then President Biden takes office and a big part of his initial speeches on foreign policy or at least writings um, emphasized human rights and supporting, you know, independent journalism and things like that. So then once the Biden administration is kind of faced with this, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, what do they decide to do and where are we now? Well, it wasn't just the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. It was also uh, Yemen played a very big part of that, um, given the humanitarian disaster there. But it, very early in the administration, um, the president made good to his word about, you know, injecting values into American foreign policy. Remember, during the campaign, he referred to the Saudis as killers and, and, and thugs and beyond the pale. Um, although when it came down to it, uh, what he did was he informed the Saudis um, of a couple of things. One, that he would deal only with the king and that the uh, the crown prince's interlocutor would be the secretary of defense, basically freezing the crown prince out of uh, the White House and those top level discussions about uh, the U.S.-Saudi relationship and, uh, and, 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 and important issues in the region. Um, the second thing uh, that the administration did was to sanction 76, I believe, is the number of people uh, in uh, and around the crown prince for uh, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And they also created the Khashoggi ban, uh, which gives the State Department the ability to deny visas to people who have been or are suspected of harassing or threatening um, journalists. Uh, so 
you know, if, you know, there's harassment of a Saudi journalist in the United States by Saudi officials or people suspected of working behalf of the Saudi officials, they won't be granted a visa to the United States. Now, it's not just related to Saudi Arabia. Uh, this can be applied to Russian officials, Turkish officials, whomever. Uh, and I think the Biden administration, the other thing the Biden administration did was it suspended arms sales pending a review uh, at how they would be used um, because the United States, uh, as the administration said, it was, supports uh, Saudi Arabia's defense and uh, secure borders, uh, but it doesn't want its weaponry to be used in the prosecution of Saudi Arabia's campaign in Yemen. And Stephen, just on that last point, what do you think the possibility of the Biden administration coming back with its review on arms deals and saying, look, because of Saudi Arabia's you know, human rights violations, we want to cancel this deal. Is that a possibility or do you think that probably is unlikely to happen? I, I think what the Sa- I think what's going to end up happening is that the administration is going to say to the Saudis, we will provide you with uh, the means to defend yourselves uh, and based on our assessment along with you of what your defense needs are. Um, I do think that uh, some of, at least some of the weaponry that um, was in the pipeline to go to Saudi Arabia will remain on hold. Um, they may not make a decision. They may just leave it that way for a while. But I think ultimately, um, you know, the Saudis you know, accounted for some astronomical amount of percentage of weapon sales to the Middle East in recent years. And the vast majority of it was coming from the United States. It was sort of an obscene amount for a relatively small country with, uh, I think, limited military capabilities. I I think if you just look at uh, what the Saudis have done in Yemen, um, they're not really up to the task, despite the fact that they have, you know, uh, loads of the highest tech uh, weapons that American defense contractors are able to sell them. So um, I think there will be a change there and there will be a, a, a discussion about what Saudi's needs are defensively rather than just basically opening up an American arms bazaar for the Saudis to shop in. And Stephen, so we have discussed the history of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. We have discussed also the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and how the Trump administration and the Biden administration reacted to it. And now we would like to end the podcast by looking towards the future. And in your opinion, where do you think U.S.-Saudi relations are headed, especially with the decreased importance of oil in this oil oil for security or security for oil relationship? And how will three and a half more years of Biden foreign policy affect one of the United States longest alliances? You know, it's a a really good question. I think it's it's hard to know. And I I don't mean to I don't mean to say it that way in order to kind of uh, in, in order to get out of what I think is a good and, and, and tough question. But I, I think the, the problem really lies in Washington rather than in Riyadh. And I think that the United States really doesn't quite know what it wants or what's important to it in the Middle East beyond certain specific kind of priorities of the moment, um, bringing the conflict in Yemen to an end. Not just the Saudi, not just the Saudi intervention there, but that is important. Uh, renegotiating a deal uh, over Iran's nuclear program. Um, those seem to be the two priorities. Um, but what are the kind of larger strategic goals? What's what's important to the United States? And I think that that's subject to debate. 
uh, in Washington. There's, you know, uh, people who think that the United States can withdraw from the region, doesn't need to be there in the way that it has. Um, there are others who kind of want to double down on some of the things that we have been doing in the past, um, given what they perceive to be as the Iranian threat in the region. Uh, and there are others who'd like to see the uh, U.S. Uh, policy in the region evolve in ways where the United States doesn't leave, but does things differently. I put myself in that in 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 that camp, um, recognizing that while the opportunities are limited, there are ways for the United States to continue to be in the region, to continue to be a provider of security and stability in the region, as well as being constructive. Um, but I don't think that policymakers have certainly not the Biden administration, certainly not the Trump administration, have thought about what's important to the United States uh, in the Middle East. Uh, basically, it's been a policy of either autopilot or pivot to Asia. Um, and that's not, really a, a, that's not really a policy at all. So um, I think that the Saudi Arabia, you know, what what can we say about Saudi Arabia? And the United States, Saudi Arabia continues to be an important producer of oil in the world. It also, in the at in 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 the absence of other um, large, influential, important Arab states like Egypt or Iraq that can that are unable right now to play regional roles, Saudi Arabia is essentially by default the. The United States' primary interlocutor in the in the region, and, and that means that we'll have to deal with it, whether we like it or not. And I think that's the calculation that the it's the calculation that the Biden administration made, despite the president's very tough words about Saudi Arabia during the campaign. On that note, Stephen, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a, a really insightful discussion, and I I know I've learned a lot, so I know our listeners will too. Hey, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.